You're listening to a free Lanyap edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. That fast transition basically decarbonizes the entire energy system within 25 years. And over the period to 2070, ends up saving us trillions of dollars. It's worth saying, this is the third great energy transition of history. For November 15th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is one of our occasional Lanyap shows. We promise our paying subscribers two shows a month, or 24 shows a year. But we normally produce a show every two weeks, which makes 26 shows a year. We call the two extra shows our Lanyap. That's what they call a little something extra in New Orleans. And we run them in front of the paywall so that non-subscribers can see what they've been missing. We hope non-subscribers will join us and start enjoying our full shows, which are typically 90 minutes or longer, and not just the first 15 minutes or so that we make available in our free abridged shows. Annual memberships that give you full access to our complete catalog of over 200 unabridged shows are just $60 a year. Just go to our website at energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button to join. Now, on with the show. We're going to tackle a topic today that I've wanted to tackle for many years, even before we started producing this show eight years ago, because it has been a topic that I've had to contend with in various ways since I began my study of energy over two decades ago, and that is the topic of energy tribes and the conflicts between them. For example, why do some people believe the right response to global warming is to deploy more renewables and accelerate the energy transition, while others claim that renewables can't solve the problem and advocate for things like degrowth policies instead? This is an incredibly complex issue with a lot of facets, which is why it has taken me so long to even begin to approach the topic, and I don't imagine we'll get to the bottom of it today. Today, we're just going to tackle one corner of it and talk about the Doomers and the Transitionistas. Now, there are other names we could use for these tribes. I'm aware that some doomers in particular object to that term, preferring to cut a hopeful profile, nevertheless based on their conviction that modern civilization is in fact doomed. And I think I'm the only one who uses the term transitionistas. But the names aren't important. The tribes are. And I hope people won't get hung up on the names I've chosen for this discussion. In fact, our guest in today's conversation uses his own terms, the systemic pessimists and the technological optimists, to describe roughly the same tribes, in a paper published in August in the journal Biophysical Economics and Sustainability. That paper, titled Addressing a Counterproductive Dichotomy in the Energy Transition Debate, is the first of which I am aware to be published in peer-reviewed literature that actually attempts to describe these two tribes, what their beliefs are, and to identify their points of disagreement and suggest a way forward. After so many years of searching for the right guest to discuss this topic with me, I was absolutely thrilled to come across his paper, and I sent him an invitation immediately. Marco Rauget is a senior lecturer and senior research fellow at the School of Engineering, Computing, and Mathematics at Oxford Brookes University in Oxford, UK. And although we haven't had him on the show before, you may be familiar with his work. He has co-authored several papers about Energy Return on Investment, or EROI, and Life Cycle Assessment, or LCA, with Dave Murphy, with whom we discussed those papers most recently in episode 184. 
And, as we'll hear later in this conversation, Marco has been part of this debate as it has played out in the peer-reviewed literature. He has also explored whether there are important material limits to the energy transition, so we'll be discussing a recent paper he co-authored on that. So we have a lot to talk about today, and I'm very excited to finally have him on the show to discuss all of it. Ultimately, I hope that today's discussion will help both tribes get beyond the unproductive debate they've been engaged in. And I hope it will persuade the doomers to stop telling everyone that we're doomed and that the energy transition is futile. Hey, I can hope. Then in the news segment, we'll check out a debunking of some unwarranted fears about alleged environmental and health threats posed by solar PV waste. We'll have an update on power grid spending starting to flow from the IIJA. We'll note a new district heating project in the UK. We'll touch on five recent events in the U.S. nuclear power sector that reinforce our commentary from episode 209. And we'll see how the World Bank's new president is aiming to accelerate the developing world's transition away from coal. And now, our conversation with Marco Roger, recorded October 19th, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Marco, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, and I'm really excited to be here today. Great. All right, so today we're going to talk about your recent paper titled Addressing a Counterproductive Dichotomy in the Energy Transition Debate, since that's what finally prompted me to invite you on the show. And of course, I've known about your work for a long time and cited it and been aware of your role in this debate for some years now, also in connection with Dave Murphy's works and your work with him. So I'm really glad to finally have you on the show and to tackle this topic because I think it's really an important one. So in that paper, you refer to what you call a growing polarization in the scientific literature on the energy transition between two camps, the what you call the systemic pessimists and another camp that you call the technological optimists. So why don't we start there? Why don't you summarize for our listeners what that debate is about? Yes, this paper of mine had been in the pipeline for quite some time. It was something that I really needed to get off my chest because it's been with increasing frustration that over the years I've witnessed this, what I consider to be a really counterproductive clash between two groups of scientists and authors who respectively have kind of painted themselves into corners. And you asked me to delineate these two camps and, and broadly speaking, essentially on one hand, you have those authors who take a high-level sort of a systemic overview of modern societies and the path that we're on as a civilization, if you will, and see the intrinsic unsustainability of our current activities and essentially come at it from a sort of ecological, if you will, viewpoint where Essentially, the core argument is that the Earth is finite, obviously, and the availability of all sorts of resources is limited, and the predominant economic paradigm of continued growth forever cannot be sustained. And I believe these are valid, obviously, incontrovertible observations. But at the same time, unfortunately, many of these authors also dismiss the potential for renewable energy technologies to bring about a much needed reduction in pressure on the environment in terms of demand for specifically primary energy resource and even more specifically the mainstream primary energy resources that we've been relying on for the past 150 to 100 years i.e fossil fuels on the opposite camp are those who have 
a more narrow focus on the issues of dependence on fossil fuels and the associated uh, global warming implications, and essentially almost exclusively focus on the energy transition, i.e. the shift from fossil to renewable energies as our mainstream sources of energy to power our societies, and tend to be, I would say, justifiably optimistic on the prospects of potentially transitioning away from fossil fuels. But in so doing, sometimes they miss the bigger picture and they fail to address the other equally arguably important aspects of sustainability or lack thereof and all of the other planetary boundaries that would continue to be crossed and uh, that will continue uh, to lead us on a path uh, that is ultimately not sustainable even if we manage to transition fully to renewable energies because going back to the former camp's core argument there cannot be infinite economic growth and infinite continued exploitation of nature even when relying on renewable energy because some of the other limits will then be met. So I think the dichotomy, as I refer to it in my paper, is is unhelpful because really we should move forward with more reconciliatory approach where both sets of arguments are recognized as fundamentally correct and try and forge a path forwards that is a bit more balanced and avoids this unnecessary confrontation. Great. All right. So what is your contention in that paper? Like, how do we deal with this false dichotomy? And what's the problem with it? Well, that's a million dollar question. How do we deal with it? Because dealing with it requires that people pay attention and that people be willing to take a step back and do a bit of soul searching and admit that they've been unhelpfully divisive in the way that they've they've put forth their viewpoints and arguments. And I, sadly, I don't see that happening very easily because many of these authors appear to be very deeply entrenched in their positions. And some of them honestly appear to have these preconceived notions that would be very, very hard to dislodge. Having said that, there's always room for hope. And I think a more constructive debate should start from the acknowledgement that you can be right about some of your tenets, some of your core arguments, and you can simultaneously be incorrect and wrong about some other arguments or some other points of contention. Case in point, I think, again, the systemic pessimists, if I'm allowed to refer to these authors using those terms, are fundamentally correct in their identification of the so-called limits to growth in terms of the impossibility of staying on a trajectory of exploitation of natural resources without any constraints. But at the same time, they are often very inaccurate about their estimates about renewable energies primarily because they are not up to speed with the developments. They keep citing old literature and old data. They blow some of the issues and problems with these technologies out of proportion. All sorts of really inaccurate statements that only tend to polarize the discussion further because they trigger a response in kind from those who are more optimistic about the technologies who then tend to get back and 
focus on setting the record straight about these technologies, showcasing the improvements and the great potential that they hold. But in so doing, they fail to engage with the more holistic limits to growth arguments that the systemic pessimists champion. And so I think, again, the way forward would be to to come to a virtual discussion table with a bit more humility and a bit more willingness to actually talk to one another and not past one another. However idealistic that may sound, I think that's the only possible way forward, honestly. Yep, I think that's well said. And I'll just say straight off here that I certainly applaud your call for a more constructive debate around those points. I think that's a very helpful suggestion. I am also doubtful that the participants in the debate so far will heed your call, (laughs) at least (laughs) certainly those in the systemic pessimist camp, because they have become extremely militant. More on that later in this episode. But for now, I think we should just kind of flesh out these tribal beliefs a bit more so that our listeners who may not be as embedded in the day-to-day debate among experts and researchers as you and I are (laughs) really understand exactly what we're talking about. Sure. So give us a few examples of the beliefs of the systemic pessimists. Yes. So I'll start with the positions that I consider to be fundamentally correct and then highlight a few points where I think the arguments are often misguided. Okay. So I think it is fundamentally incontrovertible that the planet is a finite entity and hence many of the resources that we ultimately depend on are also finite and cannot be exploited indefinitely or perhaps more correctly said, the rate of their exploitation cannot be unchecked. You have to allow natural resources to recover, to rebound from exploitation. And that's to do with things like biodiversity and many other related issues, such as the health of the oceans and the fundamental fabric of life and support structures, support systems that underpin all of the food chains. All of those things have limits in terms of how intensely they can be exploited before essentially the whole thing unravels and becomes no longer sustainable. And unfortunately, in many cases, in many of those, we've already passed the point of staying in balance with these regenerative capacity of the biosphere. And I believe that those observations are fundamentally very correct. And hence, I also believe that the systemic pessimist contention that looking for solutions or technological fixes that allow us to replace one energy source with another without at the same time questioning what we're using the energy for and whether or not it's even sensible to assume that we would be able to continue using unlimited amounts of energy to continue exploiting nature's resources indefinitely is even is even a sensible concept to entertain. So I think from this point of view, the systemic pessimists do have a point. However, what they do also, more often than not, in almost all cases, dismiss a very real potential for a technological energy transition to significantly reduce the pressure on the environment and on the planet in terms of the aforementioned imbalance. And they do so because they fail to acknowledge 
A, the improvements in these technologies over the past decades. They often refer to old data and old assessments that are no longer relevant. And also, they often rely on intuition or sort of back of the envelope calculations that do not stand up to scrutiny when you go a bit deeper into the details. I'll give you a couple of examples. There's this argument that's often made about renewable energies being ultimately supported by fossil fuels and hence only being so-called renewables or not truly renewables. And some authors even refer to them as fossil fuel extenders, nothing more than another way of using fossil fuels and ultimately the whole house of cards would come crashing down if you remove the fossil fuel inputs. Now, that is temporarily, initially, partly true when obviously you're at the initial phase of an S-shaped curve in the growth of these technologies where you're seeding their growth with an initial investment of fossil fuels. But that has always been the case for any sort of energy transition. Like when you started digging for coal, you used horse-drawn carriages and carts to extract the coal from the mines and take it to be used then in steam engines or power plants. That doesn't mean that coal is a horse extender. It just (laughs) means that initially you use what you have in order to build up the capacity and the infrastructure and the technologies for the future. But eventually, and we're already moving away from the very initial stages of the S-curve, so the S-curve is kind of a sigmoid curve that is a good depiction of how these transitions tend to happen. They have a slow start, then there's an exponential phase where the new technology ramps up very, very quickly, and then eventually it will sort of plateau and stabilize at a level compatible with the demand, and that's where maturity is. We're far away from maturity still, but we're quickly moving beyond the very initial, almost flat foot of the S-curve. And so initially, yes, you do need fossil fuels, you do need pre-existing energy sources and infrastructure to deploy the new technologies. And also related to this argument is the argument of the energy return on investment, i.e. how much energy ultimately is given back to society by these technologies over, as a ratio, the energy required to manufacture and deploy them, which would be the energy investment. Yeah, we discussed your recent paper with Dave Murphy about that in episode 184. Yes. Yeah, but part of the problem with those calculations is when the analysts fail to be very clear about the boundaries and about the, the time frame. So what I'm trying to say is that obviously in the initial phases of this energy transition where you're still using significant amounts of conventional energy sources such as fossil fuels in order to to increase the rate of deployment of these new technologies, there will be significant investments of conventional energy to deploy more and more of these technologies. But then these technologies will be long-lived We're talking about between 25 and 50 years, depending on this specific estimate and specific technology. And as more and more of these technologies come online, then the output will, in due course, far outweigh the initial investment. And there's solid science pointing to these calculations. And also, eventually, you will have sufficient abundance of these technologies already in place to be able to, for some of the energy generated by these technologies to be 
used downstream for the production and installation and deployment of new generations of the same technology. So what I'm trying right. to say is that this balance is a moving target and it's fundamentally unfair and misguided to, to take a snapshot of one year during the early stages of the transition and paint that as the be-all and end-all of the energy return and investment of these new technologies and mistake and mischaracterize what should be a power return on investment in the short term, i.e. the amount of energy return versus the amount of energy invested in one year in the initial phases of the transition with what would be the overall energy return on investment over the long term. So this, I think, is a misguided point that is brought up again and again and again by the systemic pessimists to dismiss renewable energies. Yeah. And also a related point is this argument that only a small fraction of total primary energy demand is in the form of electricity. Well, that may be the case today, but it needn't necessarily be the case tomorrow True. because of many, many sectors, industrial and otherwise, are amenable to electrification. And by electrifying those sectors, you're essentially sidestepping a major, a major thermodynamic limit, i.e. the reliance on thermal conversion processes that are inherently inefficient. Yeah, and so it's fundamentally wrong to look at primary energy demand today and extrapolate to the future without taking into account the transformative change that can be brought about by electrification in terms of increased systemic efficiency. And it's quite baffling that the self-appointed systemic scientists fail to look at the large-scale systemic implications of the energy transition and artificially constrain their analyses to one unit of this technology today and then extrapolate to the future without considering the implications on the systemic level. I agree. That is baffling. I mean, it's, it's a really simple and fundamental concept here that when you're using combustion to produce energy, you're only going to need about one third as much of final energy in the form of electricity yes. to replace the amount of primary energy that you were using in the form of fossil fuels to burn them and produce the same result. Yes, and roughly that speaking, is yes. Yeah, and that, yeah. that's just a fundamental concept. And so many of these systemic pessimists miss it completely. They think that the primary energy has to be replaced one-to-one, -one, and it doesn't. Yeah, and they also bring up things like, oh, but a lot of the energy is for the transport sector. But then let's look at that into more detail, shall we? I mean, like, yeah. there are different subsectors, obviously, within the transport sector. There's road transportation that does lend itself to direct electrification. It's been proven now beyond reasonable reasonable counter-arguments or reasonable doubt that direct electrification of road transportation is the way forward, notwithstanding all of the concerns about critical raw materials required for, say, batteries and whatnot, and we can discuss those a bit more later in the interview if, if you're interested. Yeah. But by and large, it by now should be incontrovertible that direct electrification of road transportation goes a long way towards improving systemic efficiency. 
Yes, in fact, we did an episode shortly before this one that's all about electrification of transportation, and we went yes. into a lot of detail about that, yes. so I think that's pretty well established. But, you know, another thing that I wonder if you would address is the view of the systemic pessimists that because renewables so far have only met incremental demand and not actually displaced a lot of fossil fuels, that it doesn't exist. <laughs> that the energy transition doesn't exist, or that it isn't ever going to be able to actually amount to an actual displacement of fossil fuels. Yes, there are two ways of looking at this claim. So yeah, just one brief add-on to what I was saying about transportation, and part of the transportation and part of the transport sector is maritime transportation, which uses quite a bit of energy. But if you look into it, it's quite interesting that almost a half of that energy is used to ship fossil fuels around the globe which is also something that would eventually go away yeah. if reduced demand for fossil fuel were brought about thanks to renewable energies. Yeah. So going back to your question about are renewables only adding or are they displacing? Well, there's two ways to look at this. On one hand, you could say that initially, yeah, it's more of an addition than a replacement, partly also because you're using fossil fuels to bootstrap renewables. So we're going back to the same argument that we were mentioning before. Like this is only true in the initial phase of the transition. There's no right. intrinsic reason why, say, solar photovoltaic manufacturing or wind manufacturing cannot be largely, and when I say largely, I mean 90% or more, supported by renewable energy to begin yeah. with. Even traditionally fossil fuel heavy industries like the steel industry, can be decarbonized and can be operated on renewable energy. It's just a matter of economies of scale getting there, but it's technically feasible, it's been proven already. And for many other processes that are to do with refining and high temperature processes, well, electricity is perfectly usable for that. Why is it not done yet? Because there isn't enough abundance of already deployed and installed and available renewable energy capacity to use it for those applications yet. And so that's why initially renewables are indeed bootstrapped by fossil fuels, but that's a transient condition, not something that will remain like that forever. Also, there's the other part of the argument that's to do with this predominant paradigm of continued growth and never-ending increase in total demand for energy. I mean, that is an issue, admittedly, in and of itself. And I think the, the systemic pessimists do have a valid point when they say that unless we rethink the economic paradigm, unless we take a step back and admit that demand for energy cannot keep growing forever, then we still have a problem. And I accept that. I mean, that's a valid point. But there's a lot of margin for improvement. There's a lot of nuance and the comparison should always be with sort of a counterfactual scenario where these technologies were not available. What would happen if instead of transitioning to renewables, we stuck with, um, with conventional sources of energy? Clearly, the situation would be far worse. So it's a matter of, again, not necessarily dismissing some of those concerns, but framing them in their correct perspective. Right. And then there's also this claim they make that it's just too late for humanity to do anything about climate change, that all of the measures advocated by technological optimists will never work, and that we're doomed to massively <sighs> destructive global warming, and there's nothing we can do about it. And to me, this is where their 
claims depart from anything scientific or factually based and enter into a realm of just straight belief and opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's always a gray zone between what can be backed by solid science and what is ultimately primarily a belief. I think there are worrying indications that we are perhaps approaching some tipping points in terms of the stability of the climate. I've kept an eye on the latest graphs in terms of the ocean surface temperatures. And indeed, we seem to be in uncharted territory in terms of the amount of heat that's that's stored and absorbed by oceans. And this cannot bode well for the future. Likewise, the loss of Antarctic ice is at an all-time high. And there are reports of release of large quantities of methane from the seafloor in various parts of the Atlantic Ocean, which are also worrisome. So I think that it's incontrovertible that we're moving towards some of these potential tipping points that could lead to runaway climate change, at which point there would be only limited room for manoeuvring in terms of reducing the severity of the climate change impacts. That's a valid concern, but at the same time, I don't see how that should translate into giving up all efforts or even acknowledging that technological change such as a wholesale global transition to renewable energies cannot be a good thing. Actually, whatever path we're on, there's always margin for steering the ship, so to speak, towards a more rapid collapse on one hand and a smoother descent on the other hand. And I would always choose the latter. And I don't think anyone in their right mind would choose the former. So I don't see how being genuinely and justifiably concerned about the climate trajectory that we're on can be used as an argument for dismissing the very real opportunity offered by the energy transition to, if not get us out of, at least reduce the severity of the predicament that we're in. Right. And I should mention that I've stated previously on this show that although I certainly recognize the the evidence that you were just talking about, about rising sea level temperatures, the loss of Antarctic ice, and so on, I don't think there's any actual evidence that there are tipping points yet. And I think if that's the point that this argument hinges on, that to prove that we're doomed because of these tipping points, I absolutely dispute that. I don't think there's evidence for that claim. But I just wanted to point that out because maybe you and I have a difference of opinion about that, but that's fine. I actually haven't formed an opinion on whether the tipping points are there. I mean, they will be at some point on their potential existence. Yes, I find it very persuasive that they would exist. As to identifying how far we are from them, I don't think anyone can have. Exactly. Yeah, but, you know, applying a precautionary principle is all that we can do and trying to do our best to to change trajectory, I think, is the best course of action. Absolutely. But I guess the point here is that the assertion of the systemic pessimist that we are definitely, absolutely doomed, that we definitely, absolutely cannot do anything about climate change is wrong. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Whenever okay. you say definitely, absolutely about these things. Well, I mean, that's what they say. You depart from science and you, you know, you go to uh, what? is best described as some sort of cult or religion. Exactly. So, yes, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So, 
Related to that claim is that because the energy transition can never work, because we are doomed with climate change and so on, that the only way to a sustainable future is to reduce the global population and to reduce our demands on the, on the biophysical system. And therefore, we have to shrink the global economy through unspecified degrowth policies. That's another part of this canon of beliefs. Yes, there's a lot to unpack there, and it's well. Also... Our point here is just to <laughs> lay out what it is these people believe, and I'm saying yes, that is one of yeah. the things they believe. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization of some of the arguments put forth by this camp. Again, I don't think it's either or. I don't think there's necessarily a completely wrong or that it should be espoused in its entirety. I think there are some elements that I would personally agree with and others that I would be more doubtful about and I wouldn't be so quick to embrace. Right. I think the hard limits or the notion of essentially having to acknowledge that, for example, take population. I mean, it's inconceivable to me that there could be no limit to human population. Now, where that line is and exactly how many billions is too many is really hard to say. And it also very much depends on the related concepts and issues of you know, equality and access to resources. We live in an extremely unequal world. And there's a lot that can be done to rebalance that situation. Also, without being necessarily too optimistic, but also thanks to the energy transition. Because if you if you can accomplish the same end results by using half to a third of the amount of primary energy, that frees up potential energy availability for the less advantaged or the more disadvantaged parts of the world. Right. Yeah, beyond that, where the line lies and whether we should or shouldn't reduce global population, that's, I'm not sure we should go there. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll just point out that the median estimate from the World Bank of future population growth from just eight or so years ago was that the world was almost certainly going to 12 or 13 billion people. And they've already reduced that because uh -huh. the world has changed. And as you improve prosperity, health, education, yes. women's rights, and so on around the world, the population naturally starts to Level stop off. growing at the same yes. rate. Right. And now we actually have some people worrying that there isn't a high enough replacement rate, especially in the developed world where Some parts of the uh, world, populations yeah. are starting to shrink. So I guess I would just point out that whatever you think the future trajectory of global population growth is, you should be very skeptical of that <laughs> mm -hmm. and recognize that this is a changing outlook and it is generally improving every year. Like we are not on a rapid ascent in terms of global population growth. We're actually starting to see lower rates of growth than we have in the past. And it's not because of degrowth policies, and it's not because of any sort of policies designed to reduce population. It's just a consequence of the way the world is evolving. Yes, I think that's incontrovertible. That's a very lucid observation, and I fully agree. So one final point that we should probably mention with respect mm -hmm. to the beliefs of this tribe is that 
anyone who claims that the energy transition and its portfolio of technologies can save us from climate and economic doom simply hasn't done their homework and doesn't understand the secret insights that their tribe knows <laughs> about thermodynamics and EROI and the Jevons paradox and planetary boundaries and limits to growth and ecological overshoot and how decoupling is impossible and so on. I don't want to spend one minute with you right now debunking any of those things. I just want to point out that those are things they believe and that you and your colleagues and lots of other people have debunked them. Well, I think there's no debunking the concepts. I think what needs debunking is the incorrect applications of the concepts and the simplified or oversimplified take-home messages that some authors have pretended to draw from those concepts. So I don't think right. there's anything wrong with planetary boundaries or limits to growth or obviously thermodynamics. I mean, who would question the validity of thermodynamics. Uh, and the Jeevan's paradox is very real, but then again, it can be it can be oversimplified as a message and it has been used to make arguments that don't stand up to scrutiny. Yeah. Again, it's not a question of opposing those concepts, but it's a question of not misusing those concepts to downplay or dismiss potential where potential exists. Right. Right. Okay. So let's talk about some of the tribal beliefs of the so-called technological optimists. Yes. How would you contrast what they believe? Well, I think the technological optimists are those, by and large, and I've been painted into that camp because of the work that I do and some of the associations with colleagues and some of the papers that I've published. And I'm slightly uncomfortable with that because I think that even though some of the papers that I've co-authored have focused on a more reduced scope type of question, i.e. the viability of some technology and some renewable energy trajectory, I have personally always retained a more holistic view on the world and the future of the energy transition than may have transpired from those individual papers. But regardless, without putting me front and center and talking more in general terms, technological optimists are those who essentially see great potential in the energy transition, in these new technologies. When I say new, I mean, that's partly a misnomer because they've been around for decades, but they've only recently, in the past decade and a half or two, really started being deployed and developed at a rate that is starting to make a difference. And we're talking about photovoltaics and wind power for electricity generation. We're talking about electrochemical energy storage, i.e. batteries of all kinds, to store that renewable energy that's generated in the form of electricity for later use and to better match the demand profile for electricity. We're also talking about all of the ancillary technologies that ultimately rely on this renewable energy and among those electric mobility, electric vehicles, among those low carbon steel manufacturing using renewable energy and green hydrogen also produced using renewable energy. So we're talking about a whole set of strategies and technologies that together can really bring about a change, a systemic change to how we use energy in modern societies and to the sheer amount of energy required, which would drop because of significant increases in supply chain efficiency. So the technological optimists have good reason to be optimistic about the improvements that can be brought about by these technologies. 
what they sometimes suffer from is a little bit of tunnel vision. And this is the one, I believe, correct criticism of some of the technological optimists, i.e. that they, in focusing on the very real improvements that can be brought about by the deployment of these new technologies, and they miss some of the more perhaps fundamental questions about the ultimate limits to to exploitation of natural resources in general and what have been referred to as the limits to growth. And so the problem with the technological optimist viewpoint is not that they're incorrect or that they, you know, by and large, with exceptions, of course, there will be um, an individual study here or there that has produced wrong numbers. But by and large, these studies tend to be very rigorous in terms of their assessment of these technologies and their potential, I believe. But they may have failed to engage in conversation on the more sort of holistic uh, general points raised by the pessimists, i.e. that even having access to unlimited renewable energy would still lead us down an ultimately unsustainable path if we didn't recognize other limits that will continue to be there and that we'll have to grapple with and accept and acknowledge. Yes, that's true. However, just in the interest of stating what it is the technological optimists believe, yes, mm-hmm. I think the technological optimists believe that the energy transition is a necessary response to global warming. Absolutely. And that we should do it. And that even if it doesn't solve all the other problems facing humanity, including overfishing and biodiversity loss and environmental yes. degradation and deforestation and soil erosion and plastic pollution and all the other things... We still should do it. Absolutely. And it's completely <laughs> counterproductive and backwards to dismiss it as probably the most significant action that we can take in reducing the severity of global warming, first and foremost, which has many ripple effects and implications on other types of impact as well, and to give us a better chance of being less unsustainable in the future. So it's really beyond comprehension how, in the name of a systemic view anyone could push back or dismiss the potential of the energy transition. To me, that's completely bonkers, (laughs) to use a British expression. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then with respect to the argument that because renewables are meeting marginal incremental demand primarily and have not yet displaced significant amount of fossil fuels, in addition to your comment earlier about the S-curve. Yes. If renewables had not met that incremental new demand, fossil fuels would have met it. Would have. Yes, absolutely. So just because renewables haven't displaced significant amount of fossil fuels yet doesn't mean that they're not doing anything. Yeah. Or that the energy transition doesn't exist. Of course, they have displaced what would have been a further increase in use of fossil fuels already, at least a large part thereof. Admittedly, you could say that some of the increase in some of the use of fossil fuels in the past 10 years or so has been to to generate renewable capacity, but that's a small quantity relative to the total use. But beyond that, yes, any further increase in demand for energy that has been met by renewables has displaced what would have been increased use of fossil fuels. And also, I mean, it's, again, looking at the data, yes, in terms of total quantity of primary energy, even though because of what we said before about efficiency, looking at primary energy is really the wrong way to look at it. But even if for the sake of sticking with a simple metric, we could look at primary energy, yes, 
In terms of the global use of primary energy, renewables are still a relatively small percentage of the total so far because of the initial stages of the S-curve. But in terms of net additions, if you look at the net additions of generation capacity for electricity, and I keep going back to electricity because electricity is the energy carrier of the future, of the present to a large extent, but also specifically of the future then the vast majority of those additions have been renewable energy, actually, already, over the past five years or so. Yes. So the transition is happening already. It's just that some people fail to acknowledge that and recognize that, but it is underway. We're not just talking about something for the next 20 years. It is already underway. Yeah. And because it's the nature of new technologies with this S-curve adoption that we've been talking about to start out at a low level yeah. and then gain speed and scale, yeah. I think the technological optimists look at this and say, well, you know, it's been about 10 years. We're about to hit the steep part of the technology adoption curve, and the pessimists yes. have just not acknowledged that. Yeah. One of the fundamental problem with this debate is that on one hand, you have those constantly engaging in research and modeling and life cycle assessments on these technologies that are very much up to speed with the latest developments. And those in the pessimistic camp that tend to rely on these valid but misapplied high-level systemic concepts. And in order to bolster their viewpoints, they rely on obsolete data. And that's obviously unscientific and unacceptable. Yeah. And so just to wrap this point up, I think, whereas the pessimists insist that there's nothing we can do about climate change and that none of the solutions of the energy transition can possibly save us from doom, the optimists believe that we do have choice and agency, that we can stop runaway climate change, that nothing is inevitable, that we can succeed in the energy transition. And in fact, not one of the pessimist arguments proves otherwise. Yeah, I would agree to that. The way I would put it is that even in the face of uncertainty, because I don't think that either of the arguments can be fully proved one way or the other, you cannot prove that we are beyond saving in terms of already being past the point where anything we do makes a difference. You cannot really prove 100% that the energy transition is going to save us from ultimate climate collapse. But the precautionary principle would imply and dictate that we do all we can and that we don't toss away a great opportunity when it's presented to us just because we find comfort somehow in being pessimistic. Right. So I don't think that we can definitely prove that either viewpoint is correct. We should just acknowledge that this is the best that we can do and get on with it. Right. <laughs> but just in the interest of contrasting the two beliefs, I think it's also incontrovertible that none of the arguments raised by the pessimists about EROI, thermodynamics, the Jevons paradox, and so on, actually prove that the energy transition cannot work. Yeah, I would be comfortable supporting that statement, yes. And they have made that statement many, many times. Yes. Again, it's not a matter of using or relying on incorrect principles or concepts. It's a matter of applying them in a way that isn't sufficiently... 
Scientific, I would Scientific, say. Scientific, yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So we've established what the two tribes believe. Yes. Now let's move on here a little bit and talk about a fairly epic debate <laughs> that transpired <laughs> last year yeah. <laughs> between you and a group of other researchers in the pages of the scientific journal Energies, which at the time I found this whole debate fairly astonishing. So I'm just going to take a minute here and try to summarize it quickly and get the sequence of events right, but feel free to jump in and correct me if I get anything wrong. So it began with an opinion piece by Megan Siebert and Bill Reese, who was our guest on this show in episode 54, that purported to, quote, add to the emerging body of literature highlighting cracks in the foundation of the mainstream energy transition narrative, end quote, by insisting that, quote, ecological overshoot, which is a Bill Reese invention, is the only only correct way to understand our dilemma. It then proceeded to attack renewables on a number of points, which we've just covered actually, and finally it argues for degrowth. Among the literature they cited included works by longtime fossil fuel propagandist and right-wing think tanker Mark Mills, as well as a longtime degrowth advocates like Ozzy Zayner, who we discussed back in episode 125 on our coverage of the misguided Planet of the Humans film by Jeff Gibbs and Michael Moore, in which Zayner appears. In other words, the original Siebert and Reese paper was pretty much the systemic pessimist viewpoint in a nutshell. That was followed by a comment from Mark Diesendorf, who debunked the anti-renewables arguments raised by Siebert and Reese, corrected their confusion between primary and final energy, and argued that degrowth was not, as the former authors claimed, quote, the only viable response to overshoot. That was followed by a long response from Siebert and Reese in which they dissembled for page after page, demonstrating that they were really out of their depth in their anti-renewables arguments, but then ultimately asserted that none of that matters because, quote, modern technological civilization, which they abbreviate to MTI civilization, which I think is kind of hilarious because it just shows that that is an absolute trope that they think is useful to use like all the time, as if it's a thing including renewables, is just made possible by depleting fossil fuels and therefore is inherently destructive of the ecosphere, in their words. And so it's, quote, not just an impossible pipe dream, but if realized, would actually exacerbate overshoot because it would simply be business as usual by alternative means, end quote. So... To my eyes, this paper simply reinforced their tribal totems, their insistence on collapse, but they did not meaningfully address any of the substantive points of the actual debate in a scientific sense. Agreed. Let me interject. So yeah. that very last statement by Siebert and Rees, where they say, well, even if the transition were possible, which they don't believe is, then it would just be a way of continuing business as usual by other means. I think they have a point. That is probably the only valid point in their paper, as I see it. I think it's correct to argue that we shouldn't delude ourselves into believing that just by switching to renewable energy, then we would have removed all limits to a growth and interaction with the geobiosphere, that we could just go about our lives without without giving a thought to staying within planetary boundaries in other ways. Right. So I think there is something to be said about requiring a more fundamental rethinking of our trajectory as a species beyond which energy source we use. Yeah. So that's a valid point. Sadly, in making that point, they seem to take aim at the renewable transition as fundamentally counterproductive or 
or making matters worse rather than offering an opportunity to reduce the pressure and give us much needed wiggle room to improve other aspects of our of our societal paradigms as well. Yeah. So I think that's where they go wrong. Playing the part of the doomer, they believe that they stand on higher moral ground to everyone else and somehow identify a false promise. I don't think the renewable and the energy transition is a false promise. I think it's a very valid and real promise, but it won't be enough to prevent you know, ultimate unsustainability unless we also humbly rethink our ways from many other viewpoints and we acknowledge the limits, the ultimate limits of living on a finite planet. I think they're right about this. But again, trying to strike a balance here. I don't want this interview to end with listeners thinking that my only intent was to bash <laughs> Siebert and Rees or others and say, well, they're all full of it and they have no idea what they're talking about. I think they do make very valid points, but in so doing, they are a bit unscientific, to put it charitably, yeah. in how they deal with the energy transition and that doesn't help anything. Yeah, well, <laughs> I guess I would put it in this way. Arguing that the energy transition does not avoid overshoot is like arguing that a hammer doesn't work very well as a screwdriver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're absolutely right about that. The energy transition does not promise to stop overshoot. The energy transition does not promise to avoid all future destruction of the ecosphere yes. and all the other things because that's not what it's for. That's not what yeah. it's about. So to the extent that Seward and Reese and people in their tribe are concerned about overshoot and so on, I'm like, yeah. I am too, 100%, but yes. that's not what the energy transition is about. So why are you attacking the energy transition? Yes, yes, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's move on. So that paper in which Siebert and Reese responded to the critiques of Diesendorf was then followed by another response to the original Siebert and Reese paper by a group of 17 researchers, including you and Dave Murphy, yes. which challenged it on the grounds that it was just not scientific and that it took a very selective and biased approach to the literature and the way that it focused on the challenges to renewables. Mm -hmm. It was full of cherry-picked data and so on. So this paper, unlike the original Siebert and Reese paper, was actually a very solid piece of scientific scholarship, and it debunked one by one the false assertions made by Siebert and Reese about the energy transition and actually showed that renewables are in fact viable. That was followed by then another response from Siebert and Reese that essentially just repeated their view that, quote, the climate energy debate must be framed within the real world context of ecological overshoot, end quote, while making a lot of other rhetorical complaints and again, not really addressing the substantive critiques of their work and their incorrect claims about renewables. It concluded by saying, quote, in short, we reject our critics' central arguments. Their technofix approach to climate change sidesteps overshoot altogether. Their arguments obfuscate many of the technical, ecological, and social impacts of any wholesale green energy transition. Even if successful, the shift from fossil fuels to quantitatively equivalent 100% green electricity would serve mainly to propel society further along its catastrophically unsustainable growth-bound trajectory. This makes even the theoretical possibility of a 100% so-called renewable energy transition, the passengers on the MTI Titanic, need for survival is a dramatic course change, but what many of the ship's engineers are proposing is to replace its fossil fuel engines with electric motors, end quote. 
<laughs> then yeah. finally, to wrap up the debate, the editor of the journal, Enrico Schuba, published a bit of a mea culpa, the likes of which I've actually never seen in an academic journal, saying that he shouldn't have let the original Siebert and Reese paper through without insisting that they correct some flaws in it, and that it was clearly not a review paper as it was originally billed, but rather an opinion piece with obvious bias, and that their insistence on degrowth as the only correct response to overshoot is, quote, an unfortunate echo of Malthusianism that is surely not even conceivable today, end quote. And he wrapped it up with an apology and said that his journal will not be publishing any more material on the matter and considered the case closed. Okay, so how did I do? Was that a fair summary? Any corrections? And what are your thoughts on this exchange in the end? Yeah, I think the summary was fair. And obviously, I may not be the the best outside observer on this debate to express any judgment on fairness because I was party to the debate. I was a co-author of one of the rebuttals, as you mentioned. Right. However, I do believe that we followed due diligence in rebutting the individual incorrect claims about photovoltaics, specifically a renewable energy in the original Siebert and Rees paper. And I think anyone who reads the original paper, our rebuttal and the final comment that the journal allowed the original authors to make can make up their own minds about it but i think it would be really hard to argue anything different in terms of our rebuttal being very specific and very well supported by evidence having said that i still think that it is unfortunate that the original authors in this particular case i.e siebert and reese chose to conflate their very valid argument about overshoot and even the titanic simile is probably on point saying yes we need to acknowledge that the course that we're on is unsustainable in many ways and the energy transition in and of itself isn't sufficient to avert potential collapse down the road. I would agree with that, but it's very unfortunate that they would conflate this with a preconceived attack and dismissal of the very real potential for improvement and very real potential for a reduction in severity of some of these impacts afforded by a successful energy transition. And the fact that they do so, unfortunately, plays into the hand of fossil fuel lobbies and all of those with vested interests in supporting clearly unsustainable alternatives or far less promising alternatives, including fossil fuel extenders by way of carbon capture and utilization and, and blue hydrogen and all sorts of other technological options that have far less potential for real improvement than the renewable transition. So I think it's very unfortunate that they would start with a very valid argument and then blend it with essentially a biased and badly supported back-of-the-envelope calculations to try and dismiss renewable energies and the energy transition. Yeah. That would be my take-home from yeah. this exchange. Yeah. Well, having read every one of those papers, I came out of it with mixed feelings. On the one hand, I guess it was helpful to get the contours of this debate just kind of laid out in the literature that way. I mean, at least it's all sort of public and officially part of the lit and we can refer to it and so on now. But I suspect that most readers will just find in it confirmation of whatever their priors are. That's a not, risk, yes. 
Yeah, and not really advance in their understanding of the scientific arguments that underpin the debate. I think a lot of people are just going to say, oh, well, this was an expression of my tribe's beliefs, rather than trying to understand, well, actually, does my tribe really think things that are incorrect about what EROI analysis yeah. says? <laughs> Which yeah. is a different matter. Because it seems like some of that reflexively tribal reaction just is how we do a lot of things these days. I mean, actual constructive yes. debate and correction seems to be quite out of fashion anymore. Yes. So in the end, I'm not really sure if this exchange in the pages of energies was actually that constructive. But I think it was good to get it into the literature. And actually, as you mentioned earlier, this is not the only such exchange, right? Like there are lots of people in this systemic pessimist tribe who have made very similar arguments. I just bring up this Siebert and Reese exchange because I thought it was a good example of the kind of debate that we're talking about here. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it was one of the um, episodes, if you will, that kind of prompted me to finally write this you paper know, get round yeah. writing this paper about the dichotomy and the unhelpfulness of the very divisive way in which the debate is conducted right so let's return to your paper you call for a middle way in the dialogue between these two camps yes what do you think that might look like that's a million dollar question <laughs> <laughs> it would have to come from an honest and perhaps humble recognition that no one has all the answers and that we all make mistakes in our um, eagerness to prove a point. But I think essentially it would have to stem from a genuine willingness to adhere to scientific method and principles. So what I mean by that is that we shouldn't have an endpoint in mind and cherry pick evidence or set up an experiment or some sort of modeling in order to prove what we already know that we want to prove. But we should approach and I speak as an analyst myself. I mean, I do energy assessments and life cycle assessments for a living. And what we should all do is to try and be as honest and as rigorous as possible in trying to model the future, keeping in mind that the future is ultimately unknowable, but we can model a few scenarios and see what they look like and what chance we have of being successful in pursuing a particular strategy in terms of, say, the energy transition and what the deployment of a certain set of technologies might entail in terms of a reduction in environmental impact. And these assessments and these models should be as realistic as possible and they shouldn't sweep uncomfortable evidence or uncomfortable details that happen to go counter to our preconceived notions under the rug. We should include everything and then see whether science leads us. I think that kind of scientific approach is the one that I would recommend always. And then have a discussion based on what emerges from those estimates, from those models, from that hard work, and then have a discussion as to what if, what sort of consequences would these strategies have, and we would then be in a better position to be able to quantify the improvement or the, the staving off of some of the worst case future climate scenarios, perhaps, and that would be a good starting point. And some of this work is already being done, but there's more required, and again, it should be done in such a way that doesn't try to prove a point, but 
is thoroughly neutral and scientific. And at the same time, we should try and avoid tunnel vision. We should try and avoid staying focused on a part of the problem or some details about the system without acknowledging that it's ultimately the whole holistic sort of viewpoint that is also required. And by this, I mean that in spite of all the justifiable perhaps optimism about some of these technologies and the energy transition, we should still acknowledge that there are challenges that can only be dealt with if we admit that we need to rethink the trajectory that we're on as a civilization in terms of the exploitation of nature long term and the finite resources and all of the sort of the overshoot arguments are likely fundamentally correct. So we should accommodate those into the discussion as well without using them as sort of a way to dismiss the real progress that we can make in the energy sector. Yeah, That's what a middle way looks like to me. As you may realize, I'm trying to be very balanced in the way that I express and that I formulate my answers so as not to inadvertently slip back into one of these two camps. I want to try and offer a genuine middle way that doesn't step on anyone's toes for the sake of doing so, but remains firm in identifying shortcomings and lack of scientific rigor on either side and try and move forward. Yeah, I think you've done a good job of that as well. And I see your position as definitely being between those two poles, if you will. And, you know, my conclusion from the study is that the two camps are really just after different objectives. Yeah. And so they're essentially talking past each other. Yeah. The systemic pessimists are primarily concerned with ecology and its limits. Yes. Their view is informed by ecology. They apply the original limits of growth framework, which was fundamentally an ecological study, I think, and its major conclusions to all socioeconomic issues. They're concerned about the whole range of human interaction with the ecology, and they use the language of ecology, terms like overshoot and limits to growth. Yes. Whereas the technological optimist view, as expressed in the literature that we're discussing today, is that the biggest threat to the ecology right now is global warming. <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. primarily about renewable energy technologies and this whole other suite of things like EVs and heat pumps and so on. Yes. But that's primarily a techno-economic lens. It's not an ecological lens. And it doesn't promise to address all the other problems of overshoot and limits to growth and so on. Like I said, it's the systemic pessimists are just talking about a hammer and the technological optimists have a screwdriver. They're doing totally yeah. different things. Yeah. So do you think that's a helpful way of reframing these positions? Are these two camps effectively worrying about different things, looking at yes. the world through different lenses? But the problem is we should worry about both. Yeah. Like I think it's a fundamentally unhelpful to to retreat into one's sort of niche and say, oh, but I'm artificially only concerned about A or B. You should start by acknowledging both concerns are very real and that one perhaps is a subset of the other. So the way I see it, perhaps the scope of what's assessed and investigated by the technological optimist is smaller and it's kind of within the broader scope of what's of interest to the pessimists. But the problem is that the pessimists fail to acknowledge that A, this more reduced scope is, is at the heart of, of what they purport to be concerned about, i.e. climate change and all of the 
the sectors and the technologies that contribute more heavily towards bringing about rapid climate change should be at the heart of the debate. I think that's incontrovertible. And so the very rigorous and quantitative estimates of the potential that we have to reduce the pressure, even within that more reduced scope realm, should be at the core and should be taken seriously and should not be dismissed on flimsy grounds. So I think that's where the integration could potentially happen. You know, recognition that we shouldn't just take our toys and run away and say, oh, but I only do this, so I'm I'm phased by your criticisms. And likewise from the other camp saying, oh, but I'm looking at the bigger picture and my question is more important than yours. And so I'm not interested in the details of your calculations. Well, you should be interested on one hand. So the pessimists should be interested in the up-to-date rigorous assessments done by the techno-optimists, if you will. And the techno-optimists should be humble and engage with the pessimists and recognize that they do suffer from tunnel vision. And both sets of arguments are simultaneously correct and neither is justified in dismissing the other and neither is justified in oversimplifying and trivializing the points of the other. I would agree with that. Although I guess I do feel like I have to point out that it's going to be very difficult to find this middle way. Yeah, I agree. If the systemic pessimists cannot come up with any answer about global warming, because that's what the technological optimists that we're talking about today are trying to do. They want to stop yes. global warming. And as far as I can tell, the systemic pessimists have no practical ideas about how to do that. None of their policy prescriptions are really about that. But they're sure that the energy transition isn't it. Right? Yeah, which is completely nonsense. Yeah, yeah. So if we're going to find a middle ground here, at some point, the systemic pessimists have to come to the table with some genuine, honest, credible proposals of how they think we can address the problem of global warming. Because if they have no concept on how to do that, there's just no way we're ever going to come to any sort of agreement here. Because that's what the technological optimists that we're talking about today want to do. That's their only objective. Yes. Yeah. Again, I think I've already expressed how a middle way should start, whether or not it's realistic to expect that the people currently entrenched in those camps would be ready to engage in this more balanced debate. I don't know. I, for one, would love to. And I opened the door to colleagues expressing their interest and willingness to engage in a more constructive debate. Sure. I'm not sure how many others. That's outside of my control, obviously. Well, look, I hope that this episode will reach their ears and that maybe it'll inspire some change or some new dialogue or something. I mean, that's kind of the whole point here. All right. Well, look, I would be remiss if I let you go from this conversation without taking a moment to discuss your recent paper titled Critical Elements for a Successful Energy Transition, a Systematic Review. Now, we covered this topic previously with Zeke Housefather in episode 194, but since there is still a lot of chatter out there about potential limits to the energy transition revolving around a whole variety of issues with a supply of different materials, actually, Mm. I think our listeners would be very interested in hearing about your findings as well. So what did you find? So, yeah, that was an interesting review activity that we did with my PhD student, Michelle Cameron, who is now reaching the end of her PhD. She's about to defend her PhD in January. 
And what we did was look at the extant literature on critical raw materials availability and the associated pressures on the environment and also societal pressure to do with mining and extractive practices, etc., in the light of the energy transition, i.e. how the growing demand for these elements, and we're talking about things like lithium-ion battery elements, so lithium, cobalt, nickel. We're talking about rare earth elements, such as neodymium and praseodymium and dysprosium used for permanent magnets in wind turbines and also obviously in electric motors of all sorts. We're talking about electrolyzers and their demand for platinum group metals for the catalysts and so on. So what did we find? We found that there's, there are still quite a few knowledge gaps. Some of these metals are researched more intensively than others. By and large, we found that some of these metals, as I say metals because most of them are actually metals, are concerning in terms of the sheer availability, medium to long term. Case in point, a relatively common and ubiquitous metal such as copper was found to be possibly the most concerning critical element due to the booming demand for copper for all sorts of applications to do with electricity, obviously, because of copper being the best conductor, essentially. And also the fact that the use of copper is typically for very long-lived infrastructure, such as primarily transmission lines and transformers and things that tend to be very long-lived. And so it would be a long time before we can actually use secondary sources to replace existing quantities of copper in the infrastructure. And so we will have to rely on primary deposits and estimates on current availability reserves point to a potential shortage by 2050 for copper. So that's a wake-up call. Other elements are easier to deal with because there's always the option to replace them with something else. Like substitutability is always a strategy. And this has been proven viable time and time again in the past and for other technologies. And and it will likely be applicable to many of these new or renewable technologies going forward. So thinking like along the lines of batteries, there are new battery technologies that are emerging which use far less of some of these relatively scarce critical materials, such as cobalt, for example. And moving away from cobalt is a very real possibility in batteries and ultimately also partly moving away from lithium and relying on far more abundant elements such as sodium for sodium ion batteries is a, is a definite possibility for the medium to long term. So overall, not a doom and gloom scenario or take-home message, but a more nuanced, again, picture where in order to get on with the energy transition, assuming that that's what we want to do, and it's my informed opinion that that's what we should be doing, moving on with the energy transition, we need to be mindful of the demand for these elements. There's no imminent threat of having to stop or pause or halt the energy transition because of a of an imminent scarcity of these elements that there's room for increasing production there's room for optimizing and efficiency of extraction and refining but there are also legitimate concerns about perhaps not doing enough quickly enough in terms of optimizing the supply chains also bringing about much-needed recycling potential for the shorter-lived applications such as batteries that tend to reach the end of life in a matter of, say, 10 years or so. And so with a vast, large-scale deployment of, say, electric mobility, there will be 
rapidly growing availability of end-of-life batteries where these elements could be sourced from instead of always going back to the primary resources. And so there's clear need for not dismissing or not being asleep at the wheel in terms of the coming centrality of these issues in terms of being efficient in the use of these elements. So, yeah, it's a mixed message, but primarily it's a mildly, I would say, optimistic message that emerges from this review that I don't think that there are any imminent showstoppers for the energy transition, even considering the rapidly exponentially rising demand for many of these elements. But we need to be mindful and careful and clearly not stick to a linear economy of extracting, using and throwing away as has been common practice in the past. I mean, we can't afford to do that anymore. We need to be more circular and we need to be more efficient. And also there are geopolitical concerns and issues that have emerged from the literature that we reviewed because of the concentration of a lot of the extractive practices and also of the refining for these elements that geographically speaking tends to be concentrated in In China. Yes, I was going to say particular areas of the world among which first and foremost China and that's a geopolitical concern Um, that's quite significant. Right. Well, I think this is, again, a relevant point to this conversation more broadly, because the systemic pessimists, some of them have claimed that a transition to a low-carbon energy system is impossible because of various shortages of materials. And your paper suggests that it's not. It's definitely possible, even though it will require efforts to address supply concerns and strategic planning. Yes. Yeah. Essentially, that's a fair way to synthesize the message. Yes. Right. Wow. Well, I think we can wrap it up there. Thank you, Marco, for taking the time to be on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I thought this was a really important conversation. It's about time we had it on this show, because <laughs> I feel like we've been sort of sidestepping it for, well, probably since we launched the show. So, you know, I was really pleased to see you come out with this paper to call for this middle way and to call for some reform in the way that we conduct this dialogue. I think that's a very valid point and a good message. And I hope that the participants in this debate will heed it and maybe we can do things better in the future. Fingers crossed. I won't hold my breath, but I'm definitely hopeful still. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. That was Marco Rauget speaking with us from London. I doubt this needs to be said, but I'm an avowed transitionista. I believe that the energy transition is a necessary response to global warming, and that we have to succeed in it, or else we're all stuffed and nothing else that we care about will matter. But that is just one of several distinctions I'm going to make here between the transitionistas and the technological optimists with whom I do not identify. And just to be clear, the views I express in this postscript are mine alone, although I want to acknowledge the helpful feedback I received on it from Dave Murphy and from Energy Transition Show producer Justin Ritchie. I haven't even discussed with Marco what I'm about to say here, which goes beyond the domain of Marco's paper and its focus on the debate between the two specific tribes of the systemic pessimists and the technological optimists. There should be plenty of opportunity for common ground between what Marco calls the systemic pessimists, and I'm calling the doomers, and the transitionistas. The transitionistas are absolutely on board with protecting the ecology, absolutely in agreement with reducing waste, reducing our demand on resources, reducing emissions, improving efficiency, increasing sharing and reuse, addressing equity issues, and a lot of other things. 
But the Doomers insist that anyone who believes that we must undertake the energy transition also believes in endless growth on a finite planet and maintaining business as usual, and a whole lot of other things that I definitely do not believe. One of their regular mantras is that the global capitalistic economic system and the nature of capital are such that they depend on constant growth. Without growth, they assert, it's inevitable that modern civilization will collapse. But I do not believe in trying to maintain endless growth, or business as usual, or any of those other things that the doomers claim transitionistas believe, nor do any of the other people I know who were working on the energy transition. So where does that claim come from? One answer to that question was conveniently provided by none other than Silicon Valley billionaire Mark Andreessen, who has made his bones creating some of the first web browsers and went on to become a venture capitalist. Just three days before I recorded the interview you just heard with Marco, Andreessen published something he titled The Techno-Optimist Manifesto, in which he asserted, among many other odious things, that, quote, we believe everything good is downstream of growth, end quote, and went on to praise technology as the solution to everything. Among the enemies he listed were sustainable development goals, social responsibility, trust and safety, and ethics, all of which I strongly support. As tempted as I am to get sidetracked here into dunking on Andreessen's manifesto, I won't. Frankly, it's a little too easy, because like all manifestos, it's deserving of all the ridicule it gets. But I did tuck a few links to others' critiques into the show notes for those who are interested. I bring this up only because Andreessen calls himself a techno-optimist, and because his manifesto nicely represents the insistence on growth and technology as the solution to everything that the doomers rightfully critique. But we need to put all this in context. Many of the doomers who decry the techno-optimist views were primed by the famous 1980 wager between business professor Julian L. Simon and biologist Paul Ehrlich over whether resource scarcity would be an issue over the following decade. And that, in turn, was in response to Ehrlich's famous 1968 book, The Population Bomb, which argued that population growth would soon outstrip the growth in the supply of food and resources, and to the 1972 book, Limits to Growth, which warned about resource scarcity. And all that dialogue, originating five decades ago, is actually just a fairly recent iteration of a debate that goes all the way back to the early 19th century warnings about population growth expressed by Thomas Malthus. The debate about technology-fueled growth versus limits to growth is a very old one indeed. And as it happens, a fair number of the doomers I've come across over the years are, shall we say, of a similar vintage. Decades ago, they came to see growth and the systems that depend on economic growth as a fundamental flaw of civilization that would ultimately lead to humanity's downfall. Most of them are concerned about the entirety of civilization and where it's going, not just energy systems, but the entire biosphere of Earth and the whole of human civilization. They are not necessarily the people I'm referring to in the remainder of my comments here. I don't believe that we're headed for climate doom, but the doomers can't prove that we are, and I can't prove that we're not. That bit of history remains to be written, and I think there are a lot of outcomes still on the table. But there is a specific set of the doomers who have been attacking the energy transition for years now, calling it futile and misguided, insisting that there are no solutions to the climate predicament and that collapse is inevitable. Their tropes are familiar to the listeners of this show because we have been patiently debunking them one by one. EROI and the net energy cliff, runaway climate change, limits on key materials like rare earth metals, grid balancing, storage issues, and so on. They have spent decades telling people a lot of things about the energy system that are just flat wrong. 
and even though their projections about how the energy system would fail and could not continue have been proven wrong for 20 years straight, they haven't even tried to update their mindsets, which are still rooted in the limits to growth model. I have deliberately avoided spending time on this show to rebut their claims, because I'd rather spend it talking about how to make sure the energy transition succeeds. But I can no longer maintain my silence on this debate. It's confusing and distracting too many people, and it's time to put an end to this nonsense. For 20 years, while the doomers were insisting that technology can't save us, the technologies of the energy transition portfolio grew up and became commercial. And while they continued to claim that the energy transition would never work and could never work, renewables were taking market share and absorbing most of the world's new energy demand. It was going on right under their noses, but they were too blinded by their stance against the techno-optimists to even see it. Their claim that because renewables have primarily just met new demand proves that there is no energy transition is just that, their claim. I would define it differently, and point out that when renewables are meeting nearly all of the new demand, there absolutely is an energy transition underway. Why should those who disparage the energy transition be the ones who get to define what it is? Some of this anti-transition subset of doomers also know a great deal about the old fossil fuel system, but they know nothing about how the portfolio of energy transition solutions work. Their blogs and podcasts and, yes, their academic literature abundantly demonstrate that many of them have no idea how the power grid is managed and balanced, how grid asset procurement is done, what the adoption rates of renewables and other tools in the energy transition portfolio are, what the technology evolution curves look like, the potentials of new demand-side and customer-side technologies like virtual power plants, and all the rest of it. They have very little knowledge of the progress being made and how rapidly the energy system is changing because they stop paying attention to it and stop reading and learning about how the energy system is evolving decades ago. And much of their so-called analysis is filled with absolute howlers of errors that betray their ignorance of the energy transition, such as claiming that renewables have to replace all primary energy used today one for one, or that 100% of renewable capacity must be backed up by firm assets. They continue to express views, oftentimes based on wildly outdated data, that were debunked years ago. The global energy landscape has changed drastically since they formed their views, but since they only have been listening to those who share them and refuse to learn anything new, they don't even know it. So I think that's one major disconnect in this debate. The Doomers think that the transitionistas are techno-optimists of the old Julian Simon, or new Mark Andreessen variety. But we're not. I don't identify with the technological optimist label because I do not subscribe to that whole bundle of beliefs. I don't think technology is the answer to everything, as I have been at pains to explain in several recent episodes. Indeed, as I explained in episode 196 on unglamorous solutions, I think it's a serious mistake to focus as much as we do on technologies. And I am not so optimistic to believe in a bright green sort of future in which quote-unquote business as usual can proceed while we just swap out fossil fuel systems for renewably powered ones. In fact, I believe that no matter what we do, we are in for some serious trouble and painful changes in all aspects of our lives, and almost certainly some economic shrinkage. In fact, I wrote a piece explaining my outlook on that over a decade ago, titled Economic Theory and the Real Great Contraction, which I will link to in the show notes. So although I do believe that the global economic system is probably likely to contract somewhat throughout the energy transition, maybe even partly as a consequence of it, I don't see how quote-unquote degrowth can even theoretically be a policy objective for reasons I explained in episode 125. All I hear in the way of actual policy recommendations from the degrowthers is hand-wavy argle-bargle. 
certainly nothing that could actually be put into, say, legislation. As far as I can see, most of us who do advocate for the energy transition don't even think about whether it produces green growth or not or allows business as usual to continue or not. Those are the concerns of the doomers, not the transitionistas. And whether we should pursue growth or not is a part of that old debate between the doomers and the techno-optimists. The energy transition isn't even about that. I think most of us in the transitionista camp have simply concluded that we need to work as hard as we can on the energy transition to deal with the problem of global warming. We're not techno-optimists. Most of us would disagree violently with nearly everything in Andreessen's manifesto. We've studied the energy and climate systems in depth, and we know and understand and are concerned about the biophysical limits. We definitely do not agree with the techno-optimists like Simon and Andreessen, who believe that technological innovation can overcome all limits. We absolutely do agree that the world can't progress for the next 150 years the way it did for the last 150 years without catastrophic consequences. And so we are looking for how the solutions of the energy transition can help us get to a new, more sustainable future running on abundant and extremely cheap renewable energy within new, more equitable economic frameworks. So I think that explains, at least partially, why when I hear doomers saying that we transitionistas just want to maintain economic growth and business as usual and all the other tropes they have about the techno-optimists, it always sounds like a weird and off-base characterization, because we're not about any of that. Apparently the Doomers have mistaken us for being part of the techno-optimist tribe, but we're not. We're another tribe altogether, one that is narrowly focused on rebuilding the energy system to address the threat of global warming. And that's all. But there's another question we have to answer. Why do the Doomers not want to see the energy transition succeed? Why do they make ridiculous claims like insisting that there are no solutions to climate change, that nobody can stop it, and that the energy transition will never work, or that it doesn't exist and we're all doomed? Why are they actively discouraging people from doing all they can to make the energy transition a success precisely at the crucial moment when we most need people to act? I'm going to attempt an explanation after a short diversion. I came across a blog post the other day from a self-described climate doomer that repeated most of the doomer tropes and went on to assert that, quote, we should tell as many people as possible that it's too late to save civilization. Once we accept this reality, we can stop wasting time on the so-called solutions that only make the problem worse and start preparing for a future without all the modern conveniences we take for granted, end quote. I've seen some flavor of that repeated time and time again, and I recognize it as a classic Doomer view. I'm sure the author is in violent agreement with Siebert and Rees. But as I read through his post, I had the same experience that I've always had when reading blogs by energy Doomers, or listening to their podcasts, or watching the Planet of the Humans film. The evidence they present is a long recitation of all the ills of humanity and the damage we do to the planet, but none of it amounts to any sort of proof that we are, in fact, doomed. They do have a list of complaints, but not even a theory about how that absolutely definitely leads to doom. There's no chain of causality. It's just an a priori assertion. And the claims they make about the energy system, and why they believe that the energy transition will never work, are, quite simply, wrong. As the responses to the Siebert and Reese papers documented in painful detail. So if the claim of the energy doomers is, we have analyzed this evidence and come to the conclusion that civilization is doomed, then I think that's a misrepresentation of their views. It appears to me that the causality actually runs in the opposite direction. They believe that civilization is doomed, and so they proceed to round up evidence that they think supports that view. They start with a belief and proceed to look for evidence, not the other way around. To my eyes, that's exactly what the debate with Siebert and Reese showed. 
When Siebert and Reese's assertions were debunked, they merely retreated to repeating their belief that the world is an ecological overshoot and nothing else matters. And I guess I should also disclose here that from 2013 to 2015, I worked for Mathis Fockernagel, who co-developed with Bill Reese the ecological overshoot concept and methodology at the Global Footprint Network, which compiles data from all over the world about the state of the global ecology and the human demands upon it. So I have a fair amount of literacy on the question of ecological overshoot, and I know of what I speak. I am no stranger to the data supporting the concept of ecological overshoot. To reiterate, I read all the papers that Bill Reese co-authored with Megan Siebert that I summarized in this interview. I interviewed him seriously and in good faith in episode 54. I worked for his one-time colleague and co-developer for a year and a half and studied the ecological overshoot data and methodology professionally and in depth. In fact, I strongly agree with the point that humanity is, in many respects and in many places, in ecological overshoot and that we have a long, long list of things we need to correct and a massive amount of damage to undo. And I also strongly agree that we've barely even started on those projects. And at the moment, I would say our prospects are pretty bleak. In big, broad terms, the doomers are absolutely correct that humanity is out of control on multiple vectors and could very well be dooming itself to extinction, although I don't believe that's inevitable. But amazingly, I can hold that idea in my head while also believing that the energy transition is necessary and vital. I have also spent many thousands of hours of my life studying the views of others that I would put in the modern Doomer camp. People like Richard Heinberg, James Howard Kunstler, Gail Fairberg, Art Berman, Václav Smil, Nate Hagens, Charlie Hall, Pedro Prieto, Dave Hughes, Simon Michaud, Raul Ilargi Meyer, Alice Friedman, Tom Murphy, Dave Cohen, Colin Campbell, and many, many, many others. Many thousands of hours of reading their books and articles and seriously and credulously considering their views, studying the evidence, and asking the standard scientific questions. Can this assertion be supported? Is there contrary evidence? Can this theory be falsified? Is there another way to look at this? So I know what this tribe believes. I know it as well as they do. I was once a member of that tribe. Kinda. I have counted many of them as friends and colleagues. I could also name a lot of others in the Transitionista tribe and what they believe. Certainly many of the guests on this show are Transitionistas. And they include people like me, Marco, Dave Murphy, Ugo Barty, and others. I have also spent years studying the works of the previous generation of Doomers and Transitionistas. People like Bucky Fuller and Krishnamurti, David Suzuki, Dennis Meadows, Jorgen Ronders, Paul Hawken, Amory Levins, and many more. And I've had many guests on this show who express a whole range of views associated with all of those tribes. I've tried to give them all a fair shake, based on two decades of intensive study and honest dialogue with all of them. I can truthfully say that I have a highly informed understanding of what they all believe. So what's the disconnect between my view and that of the Doomers? My guess, and it's only a guess, is this. The Doomers are caught up in a terrifying rapture. For them, doom and collapse are a near-term reality, something I think many of them expect to experience in their lifetimes. Many of them prophesy famine, disease, death, fascism, war, and extinction. Soon. They see the collapse of the old energy system as something that will precipitate the total collapse of civilization. And in that collapse of civilization, they see hope for a different kind of future in which all the ecological harm they worry about is halted or even cured. As such, some of them seem to have an associated savior complex. It's this massive, pervasive, all-encompassing hallucination. It's closer to generalized anxiety disorder than scholarship. 
I think the recent emphasis on so-called tipping points and feedback loops in the climate literature is part of this. A lot of people seize on those stories as further confirmation of their beliefs that we're headed for climate doom. And I know from experience that they're not remotely interested in learning about why those stories may not be true. They're looking for confirmation, not information. In the face of such debilitating anxiety and confusion, believing that everything is futile and that we're headed for extinction is a handy way of simplifying a complex world and feeling like one understands where one is in it. It's an ugly outlook, but at least it seems like something you can plant your feet on. It doesn't require you to maintain contradictory data in your mind, or consider counter-trends, or exceptions to your rules. It doesn't leave you in an uncomfortable state of permanent uncertainty. It doesn't require you to spend thousands of hours understanding the insanely complex energy system and how the world actually works. And in fairness, the Doomers can point to plenty of evidence that humanity is on a path of destruction, whereas the transitionistas have to paint a picture of a world that doesn't yet exist. Besides, believing we're doomed lets you remain comfortably in an ecological mindset without dealing with the grubby business of capitalism and actual governance. If everything is going to collapse, why even bother with trying to stop carbon emissions? You're off the hook. Phew! Whereas the transitionistas are mainly interested in finding some paths that make some progress against our various challenges, even if they aren't perfect or don't address the totality of all human challenges and can't solve all our other ecological problems in addition to the primary objective of carbon emissions. And they would rather spend their limited time and energy trying to make positive change than making the case that everything is futile. And for that, the Doomers snidely deride them for being high on hopium and give the transitionistas one more reason to just ignore them and all their trolling. As for me, I migrated. I started mostly in the ecologically-minded tribe, although it took me a while to come around to the true Doomer perspective because I was always interested in invention and technological progress as well, and I thought there was always some hope there where the Doomers did not. And eventually I migrated closer to the transitionista view. That happened because I made up my own mind. I put in years of study, taught myself all about the energy system and what the various tribes think about it. I studied the data, worked it over in spreadsheets, and tried to verify or falsify everything put before me. What I found, to my dismay, is that the Doomers have put out a lot of shoddy scholarship. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. The exchange between Siebert and Reese and their critics is exactly what that whole field of scholarship looks like. The Doomer views on the energy system generally rely on very grossed-up analysis and absurd simplifying assumptions and very old data and poor methodology. And by and large, it's wrong. All their standard talking points about why the energy transition will never work, EROI, the Jevons paradox, resource depletion, the monetary system and debt, etc., are not problems that will meaningfully impede the energy transition. They just aren't. Eventually, my study of the energy system convinced me that the energy transition is not only possible and economically sensible, but an absolutely necessary project for humanity at this moment. It's the only sensible response to climate change, because it's the only way to stop carbon emissions, short of something extremely drastic like disappearing a big chunk of the global population, which I just don't think is an acceptable policy objective, or some other technologies that don't yet exist. And so while I can see how the Doomers are tempted to step back and look at it all as if everything humanity is doing is pointing the wrong way and is fundamentally hopelessly flawed, I just have to say, well, yes, I agree, except for the energy bit, because the energy transition is necessary, and it's working, and it absolutely will work, and is happening, and must happen. Absolutely everything in the global techno-economic system is moving that way. 
As I wrote almost a decade ago, it's inevitable and unstoppable, and it's got a whole lot more momentum now than it did then. We are doing this. The problem for the doomers is that if they're wrong, and they are, about the energy transition being impossible and futile, then they will not have the collapse they anticipate to precipitate comprehensive societal change. Like those waiting for the second coming, the actual doom they experience is having to live out their days without such a dramatic event to catalyze the change they want to see in the world. The apocalypse has been canceled and replaced by a halting, meandering, messy, and inevitable transition, because that's the only kind of transition that our esteemed leadership seems able to manage. There will be no collapse. Instead, there will be a long, awkward muddle through down whatever default pathways there are in human arrangements. It won't be smooth, it will create a lot of jobs and opportunity, and it will also create a lot of stranded assets. It certainly won't look like business as usual, but it will happen. Civilization will keep functioning. And throughout the whole thing, all those other ecological horrors that the doomers worry about will still be with us. Even if we tamp carbon emissions down to zero, the overfishing and pollution and habitat destruction and species extinction and overconsumption of resources and waste and inequity and unconstrained growth and all the rest of it will still be problems they need to tackle. So I hope the doomers will stop wasting their time and ours disparaging the energy transition and start working on how to solve the problems they are most worried about because they're going to have to solve them without the total societal collapse that they thought the decline of the old energy system was going to give them. There will be no wind of collapse at their backs. They're going to have to grapple with a system that is very much alive and functional. And I hope that the more prominent voices that have been disparaging the energy transition will have the courage to put their egos aside and start paying attention, studying the current data, updating their priors, and trying to understand why their viewpoints might be wrong. That is what good science is all about. If you haven't even tried to falsify your theory, you're really just doing opinion, not science. There is one more sadly ironic thing that has to be said about the doomers. Most of them are effectively carrying water for the fossil fuel industry. I think for most of them that's totally unintentional. I doubt that very many of them are deliberately defending or supporting the fossil fuel industry. But by breeding despair and nihilism, by telling people that the energy transition is futile and we're headed for collapse, they're enabling what climate scientist Michael Mann called inactivism. And the fossil fuel industry, with its manifold efforts to confuse and distract the public and undermine the energy transition, is all too happy to amplify the doomers because they're doing their job for them. The more press coverage of relatively minor issues like PV toxicity and wind turbine blades winding up in landfills and cobalt mining in the Congo, and the less about the massively greater damage to the environment that the fossil-fueled energy system does every day, the better it is for them. The more that people think the energy transition is impossible or futile, the less opposition that big carbon has, and the more they'll continue to dominate the energy system. And if the doomers don't see how they're being used as tools by big carbon to delay and oppose the energy transition, and how every time they attack the energy transition they are doing its work, then they are seriously, painfully lacking in self-awareness. One final point. The longer I study the energy transition, the more I realize that the energy transition is not fundamentally a technological or even an economic problem. We have all the technologies and capital we need to decarbonize the energy system. A renewably powered energy system will be better and cheaper, and the sooner we do it, the cheaper it will be. Talking about technologies can be fun and get a lot of clicks, and it's certainly a lot more profitable than talking about, oh, let's say, regulatory reform. 
But the energy transition isn't primarily a technology problem, and the solutions aren't technologies either. The real hurdles to the energy transition are political, cultural, and social arrangements that people who stand to lose money in the energy transition use to block or retard change. As I recently discussed with John Cumey in episode 207, the fossil fuel industry has rigged the system in every possible way they can rig it. They influence politicians, media, business, banking, and really the entire world. As has now been well documented, they spent about 60 years in a deliberate campaign to confuse and distract the public and undermine the energy transition because it challenges their business, their money. It's all about power, wealth, and culture. And that banal fact is really the entire story about the energy transition. We have to get the energy transition done and put fossil fuels out of business. It's really that simple. And I am confident that we will do it. And the doomers will have to shake off their collapse visions and get to grips with the problems they want to solve in the context of a successful energy transition. We don't need new technologies. As longtime environmental activist and co-founder of NRDC, Gus Speth, put it, quote, I used to think that top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. End quote. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. An excellent debunking of some shoddy and out-of-date analysis casting doubt on the future of solar was published in the journal Nature Physics in October. It highlighted unsubstantiated claims about the harms that PV modules pose to human health and the environment, fueling public concern and opposition to solar development. The potential waste resulting from the growing deployment of solar PV has been wildly overestimated and cited out of context, the researchers say. They estimate that if the energy transition does not happen, 300 to 800 times as much toxic coal ash will be produced, and 2 to 5 times as much oily sludge waste as the amount of PV waste that the energy transition would produce. Putting it another way, the researchers say that globally, the world would generate up to 440 to 1300 times more mass of municipal waste than PV module waste by 2050. The researchers also found that the potential for PV module waste to leach toxic metals has been overstated. They do not find any significant risk for the commonly cited elements, and note that the only potential human health and environmental concerns in commercially produced PV modules found by the IEA are trace amounts of lead in the solder of crystalline silicon modules, which manufacturers are seeking to reduce, and the cadmium in cadmium telluride modules, which is actually extremely stable and does not pose the same toxicological hazard as elemental cadmium. And the researchers found that the solar industry is investing in circular strategies to reduce, reuse, and recycle the components of PV modules, and that doing so is profitable. In short, the researchers say that, quote, communities, government agencies, and policymakers may be operating under outdated or false assumptions about PV module waste and toxicity hazards resulting in delay or unnecessary impediments to the rapid deployment of PV needed to meet decarbonization goals, end quote, and that, quote, the solar industry can contribute to decarbonization efforts worldwide through continued research on reliability, low-carbon materials, high-yield PV modules, and systems and advanced circular pathways for PV, end quote. Ultimately, they call for what they call objective research and good communication about solar. Item 2. 
On October 18th, President Joe Biden's administration announced $3.5 billion in grants for projects to protect the aging U.S. power grid from extreme weather and fires and to connect transmission systems with more electricity from renewable energy sources. The funding comes from the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, known as the IIJA. We discussed some of these projects at the time in episode 161. It was the first round of selections under the broader $10.5 billion Grid Resilience and Innovation Partnerships Program managed by DOE. The grants will go to 58 projects in 44 states and will help bring more than 35 gigawatts of new electricity onto the grid from wind and solar and other renewable power. It will also invest in 400 microgrids, according to the DOE. More than three-quarters of the projects involve the IBEW Union of Electrical Workers. The projects include things like battery storage for smart grids, local microgrids, new transmission lines, substation flood mitigation, replacing aging infrastructure, deploying battery backup systems, expanding transmission, and reducing wildfire risks associated with power lines. Item 3. Apparently, Cambridge, Massachusetts and Cambridge, England have more than a name in common. Two residents of a small village called Swaffham Prior, just outside of Cambridge, England, have succeeded in creating a district heating network that they call a heat pump village, and it has remarkable parallels to the story we reported in News Item 1 of Episode 169 and News Item 2 of Episode 205 about two residents of Cambridge, Massachusetts, who succeeded in creating a district heating system they called Network Geothermal. In both cases, the residents decided they needed to intervene if they wanted to reduce the cost and expense of continuing to rely on fossil-fueled heating systems. Swaffham Pryor has no gas transmission network, so locals rely on expensive oil-fired boilers for heating. Residents Emma Fletcher and Mike Barker decided to try to switch to a renewably-powered district heating system instead. Leveraging Fletcher's experience in helping to build eight affordable homes in the village that are heated by solar-powered heat pumps, and Barker's experience as an environmental consultant who worked with a Danish firm that builds renewable district heating networks, the two labored for five and a half years to navigate a maze of planning and legal red tape to build the system. It uses 100 boreholes to extract heat from the earth using a central ground source heat pump, which heats water to 74 degrees C or 165 degrees F. The hot water is then circulated around 7.5 kilometers or 4.6 miles of pipes connected to homes. There, it enters a small heat exchanger no bigger than a standard UK combi boiler, which transfers the heat to the existing domestic radiator and hot water system in the house. Connecting to the network involves only some minor pipe work to install the heat exchanger and meter box. Industrial air source heat pumps, which work best in warmer weather, provide some supplementary heat to the network, and a computerized control system switches between the two systems as needed to maximize efficiency. The whole system is owned by the county council, which is what county governments are called in the UK, powered by a solar ray owned by the county council, and the boreholes are drilled on land owned by the council. Around 150 out of 200 homes in the village core have signed up to join the network, with 25 already connected. The system has been designed for up to 300 properties and can be scaled to accommodate more. There's no joining fee, and the householders pay the council a metered tariff set below the going rate for oil. There's an annual service charge based on a property size, starting at 289 pounds, but householders no longer need to service their own boilers or cover costly repairs. 
The entire project cost £12 million, which averages out to £80,000 for each of the 150 homes signed up so far. Cambridgeshire County Council secured £3.2 million in grants from the Department of Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy and took out a loan for the rest. So the system wasn't cheap, but advocates expect subsequent projects will be able to learn from the Cambridgeshire experience and build systems more cheaply. Other oil-dependent communities are already reaching out to Cambridgeshire to learn how they can follow suit. Government support for such projects is still available through the Heat Network's Delivery Unit and Green Heat Network Fund. For more on district heating, listen to episode 170. Item 4. Well, we certainly picked an interesting week to launch episode 209 on nuclear power. Several related events transpired that week that I'm going to summarize very briefly in the interest of time, but interested listeners are encouraged to log into our website and check out the links in the show notes if they want to explore these stories in greater depth. Item 4A. On October 19th, Iceberg Research, a short seller of SMR developer NuScale Power, dropped a bombshell suggesting the company is on the brink of collapse because a widely publicized roughly $37 billion deal with a blockchain data center service, whose managing director was found guilty of securities fraud in the past, has, quote, zero chance of ever being executed, end quote. Iceberg Research also notes that NuScale's other widely publicized project for the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, known as UAMPS, is just three months away from termination with little hope of rescue, and that NuScale as a whole has around 15 months before its cash runs out. NuScale has been the most advanced and supposedly credible player in the SMR space to date. Its stock was down 33% on the week. Item 4B. On October 17th, a top Westinghouse official involved in the V.C. Summer nuclear plant debacle, who lied to an FBI agent during the federal investigation into why the defunct energy giant Scana failed to build two nuclear reactors, despite spending billions of dollars, has agreed to be a prosecution witness in any future cases in exchange for a light sentence. Carl Churchman must wear a geolocation monitoring device, pay a $5,000 fine, and serve a year on probation that overlaps with his six-month home detention. Churchman was facing as much as five years in prison for lying to the FBI, but the U.S. attorney agreed with the lenient sentence because Churchman immediately confessed when caught, showed remorse, and cooperated with the government's investigation. Churchman is the third person to be sentenced for the project cover-up after the two top executives from Scana. Item 4D. On October 4th, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission issued what's known as a preliminary yellow safety assessment, a measure of how serious an atomic safety problem is considered at a power plant, to Dominion Energy for what they say is a substantial safety violation after finding that utility workers failed for 20 years to resolve cracking problems at the company's V.C. Summer nuclear power plant. Yellow assessments are rare and are the second most serious on an NRC scale of severity. The cracks were found in the plant's diesel generator system, one of the plant's most important backup safety systems. Item 4E. On October 20th, Patty Durand, former president of the Smart Energy Consumer Collaborative and a candidate for the Georgia Public Service Commission, published an opinion piece in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution calling for reform of the state's utility regulation. She pointed out that the Sunbelt state of Georgia is 43rd in the U.S. state rankings for rooftop solar, while the PSC has approved a 67% increase in customers' electric rates to pay for the $35 billion Vogel boondoggle, quote, the most expensive power plant ever built on Earth, end quote. 
Durant's campaign for a seat on the Georgia PSC was indefinitely postponed by a federal judge in October 2022 amid legal proceedings over the state's election laws, which dilute the influence of black voters. Durant, a Democrat, is challenging incumbent Republican District 2 Commissioner Tim Eccles, while Democrat Sheila Edwards is challenging incumbent Republican District 3 Commissioner Fitz Johnson. While the case remains in legal limbo, the incumbents continue to serve on the commission, even though their terms expired in January 2023. For background on the VC Summer and Vogel nuclear boondoggles, listen to episode 62. You'll also find updates on these long-running scandals in the news items of many shows we've published in the six years since then. And yes, in case you were wondering, the Nuke Nuts behaved exactly as I predicted they would in reaction to episode 209, making a lot of rhetorical arguments and attacking anything they could think to attack without actually addressing any of the substance of our critique. What can I say? Nuke Nuts gonna Nuke Nut. And finally, item 5. On October 13th, World Bank President Ajay Banga laid out ambitious plans to widen the development lender's mission to include climate change and other global crises, speed decision-making, and offer more and cheaper loans. In his first major address since taking office on June 2nd, Banga said that $157 billion in new lending capacity would be on offer over a decade, and that the World Bank would explore loan maturities of 35 to 40 years for social and human capital investments. The bank is also looking for other ways to increase concessional finance for energy transitions for countries that use both its main lending arm for middle-income countries and its fund for low-income countries. Banga specifically mentioned that the bank is, quote, looking to reduce interest rates to incentivize exiting from coal as part of energy transitions, end quote. For background on the bank and Banga's new leadership, listen to episodes 189, 190, 199, and 201. In closing, thank you for supporting the show. Since we are entirely subscriber-supported, it could not exist without you. Be sure to log into our website to explore our extensive show notes, interview transcripts, and the text of the news items for each episode, all of which are only available on our website. And if you have an annual or group subscription, check out our exclusive job board and complete back catalog of evergreen shows. If you have feedback to share about the show or suggestions for future shows, don't hold back. I love hearing from our listeners. Just use the comment form on any show page or email me directly at chris at energytransitionshow.com. And please help us build our audience by telling your friends and colleagues about the show, by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, and by giving us a shout out on social media at transitionshow at mastodon.energy on Mastodon or at transitionshow on Twitter. Finally, if you think your company, nonprofit, or university would benefit from a group license or site license so your colleagues can enjoy the full benefits of our annual subscriptions, just drop us a line. We offer significant group discounts and have an easy way to enroll everyone. And thank you for spreading the word. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.